This is 50 Shades of Green by Climate Group, your monthly climate podcast exploring all the essential news and views from the U.S. and around the world. I'm Phil Kehoe. Today, our guest correspondent, Climate Group's Adam Lake, will join with Dr. Jeffrey Shaman, Interim Dean of the Columbia Climate School and Joshua Amponsem, Strategy Director of the Youth Climate Justice Fund, to discuss the intersection between climate change and human health and the policy solutions required to cool down a warming world. We have Katie Lanegren here with us today to discuss some of the latest highlights in climate news and why they matter. Katie, what do you have for us today? Thanks for having me today, Phil. Since we are on location at the Columbia Climate School, I found two stories having to do with education. First, I want to give an update on a story that we reported on in June. 16 kids, some as young as five, sued the state of Montana over climate change. They said that the state's contribution to climate change violates the Constitution, which specifically guarantees their rights to a clean and healthful environment. Well, earlier this month, Judge Kathy Seeley ruled in favor of this landmark case, Held versus Montana. The court ruled that a provision in Montana's Environmental Policy Act that prevented the state from considering the climate impacts of energy projects was unconstitutional, as the Montana Constitution guarantees citizens a clean and healthful environment. Montana is a major producer of coal and gas, and they now must consider climate change when deciding the future of fossil fuel projects. So that's fantastic news, but I do have to include that the Attorney General's office plans to appeal, which means it would be heard by the state Supreme Court. A similar case is expected to go to trial in Hawaii next summer. Our next news story takes us back to the East Coast. In 2020, New Jersey became the first state in the nation to include climate change into the standard curriculum, and it was introduced last year. They incorporated lessons to help students understand what climate change is, how it happens, and its impact on our communities. This is across all grades, K through 12, and multiple disciplines, art, health, science, social studies, languages, tech, and career readiness. Now they have doubled down on this. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy and the legislature has further committed to this by setting aside $4.5 million in grants to support and train educators and committed another $5 million for 2024. For those who aren't familiar with New Jersey, the state has about 130 miles of coastline and residents, including these students, are already experiencing hotter temperatures, heavier rains, more frequent flooding, and decreased air quality. Other states like Connecticut are already looking at adopting similar programs. Katie, thanks so much. Shameless plug here as a proud New Jerseyan. It's very exciting to see what the state has been doing related to climate change education. And the youth activism out of Montana is honestly very refreshing. I'm very curious to see how that case will continue to evolve and really the landmark impact that it might have on the future of climate justice in America and around the world. No, that's right, Phil. There are other states that have similar language within their constitution. So I think that the youth will probably be looking at that and seeing what difference they can make. Wonderful. Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing these updates. I'm sure we'll be keen to get into more of them as we progress in the show. Thanks, Phil. We are just under three weeks until Climate Week NYC 2023. To celebrate in the lead-up, we're bringing together some of our local partners to explore how and why the movement matters. How we can, we will, secure a better future through bold and decisive climate action. This summer, the climate crisis has been clear and present. July was the hottest month on record. And August has seen widespread extreme weather events. Wildfires in Maui, a tropical storm in California and heat waves worldwide. While the physical and financial evidence of climate change can often seem apparent, the destruction of the natural environment, the loss of property and lives, 
Countless lives are indirectly impacted by climate-induced phenomena. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, climate change affects human health by altering exposures to heat waves, floods, droughts, and other extreme events, vector, food, and waterborne infectious diseases, changes in the quality and safety of air, food, and water, and stresses to mental health and well-being. The World Health Organization estimates that meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement could save about a million lives a year worldwide by 2050 through reductions in air pollution alone and avoiding the worst climate impacts could help prevent 250,000 additional climate-related deaths per year from 2030 to 2050, mainly from malnutrition, malaria, diarrhea, and heat stress. In this episode, we will dive into the specifics of the linkage between climate and health and the steps we can take to mitigate these risks in a just and equitable way. Organizations like the Columbia Climate School and the Youth Climate Justice Fund are on the front lines of this crisis to research the impacts and advocate for informed, equitable, and just policy solutions. Today, Climate Group's Adam Lake will be driving the conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Shamed, Interim Dean of the Columbia Climate School, and Joshua Amponsem, Strategy Director for the Youth Climate Justice Fund, and providing their own insights on how to understand and navigate this crisis. Adam, welcome again to Fifty Shades of Green. Thank you so much, Phil. Really good to be here again. I guess it's a bit of Fifty Shades of Green exclusive. It's the first time we're actually recording on location here at Columbia Climate School, which is very exciting. A lovely view we have of Harlem here as well, joined by Dr. Shaman, Interim Dean at Columbia Climate School. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Adam. Thank you for having me. Thank you for hosting us. You have been a partner of Climate Week NYC for many, many years. Just before we kick off on the conversation about climate and health, it'd be great just to hear a little bit more about Columbia Climate School, how long you've been around for and what you're trying to achieve. Well, in some ways, we've been around for quite some time. You know, the foundations of doing climate science have been at Columbia University for over 70 years, based at our Lamont Dougherty Earth Observatory. That location was a place where the term Global warming was coined by Wally Broker in 1975. Yes, absolutely. He wrote it in a science paper in 1975. Are we on the brink of a pronounced global warming? It's where ENSO, El Nino prediction was developed. It's in association with the Goddard Institute of Space Studies. It has done an enormous amount of work actually elevating the profile of climate change and bringing it before Congress with James Hansen, who was their director in the 80s and 90s, having critical testimony at the time. So we've really been at the center of a lot of work on climate and climate change change, understanding climate variability, huge amounts of work also studying paleoclimate. We at Columbia have an Earth Institute that was developed over 25 years ago that began running student programs and bringing researchers, faculty, and students together to really address transdisciplinary problems. And it was about five years ago that then-President Lee Bollinger put together a task force to see whether or not building a climate school with formal programs would really be something that the world needs and that the school should be supporting. And there was overwhelming support from the task force. I was actually on it to actually move forward with that. And so the school was formally launched in late 2020. And I just had the pleasure of speaking to our third incoming class, welcoming them for orientation. Responsible for many, many firsts. I'm sure many more firsts to come. Hopefully. I really think our students are where our impact is going to be greatest because we can teach and train many of them and they can go out and impact the world in policy, in solutions, in technology, mitigation, adaptation, the transition to a just society. It's there that we're really going to exponentiate our effect. So bringing this to the conversation we're looking to have today, climate and health. Now, you are obviously one of the world leading experts when it comes to climate and health. It's the subject that we're very much looking to dig into greater detail today. Just to set the frame for us, what does it mean when we say climate and health? I think 
what we're really talking about are the health impacts of climate variability and change. Extreme events, gradual changes. I like to break it down into sort of three categories, the direct effects, the indirect effects, and what I refer to as sort of complex downstream effects. So the direct effects would be things that you and I would think of having an immediate effect because of the climate on health. So in other words, a heat wave. We have a heat wave, we see a lot of morbidity and mortality associated with it. They're very devastating. There are a lot more of them. We're seeing high temperatures and heat indexes at levels we've never seen before. It's really unprecedented, but it's a direct impact. You see the elevated temperatures, that's when people start going to the hospital. And once it cools off, it stops very quickly. Indirect effects, I think, are things that are mediated through some other phenomenology. So infectious diseases, changes in where you have distribution of vectors, how diseases are promulgated around the planet, that's sort of an indirect effect in the fact that climate change is affecting ecosystems and a whole biosphere, and that in turn is affecting human health. The third group is where it really gets complicated and frankly a little bit scary. And those are the complex downstream effects. And that may have to do with conflict, food insecurity, water insecurity, things that not only have a climate component to them, but also geopolitical and economic stressors that are driving the problems as they manifest, but for which climate is one impact and it can have very profound implications on human health. Do you think sometimes it's difficult to convince people of the link between these health things that we're seeing and climate change? It has been, and unfortunately, it's getting easier because the events are more frequent and they're more extreme. In July, in the Persian Gulf Airport in southwest Iran, they recorded a heat index of 152 degrees Fahrenheit, 66.7 degrees Celsius. That well exceeds physiological limits for humans. The exposure to that kind of environment for a very short length of time is going to put somebody in extreme heat stress because you can't regulate your core body temperature. When we start to see phenomena like that, such as in the United States, Phoenix had 31 consecutive days with a high temperature of 110 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. They're seeing the effects of climate change and they're feeling it. That heat in particular, I think, is going to be one of the big drivers. As we see with regularity, temperatures in excess, I'm going to use Celsius now, of 50 degrees Celsius at locations around the globe. I think it's because becoming pretty apparent to people that the environment is becoming less hospitable because of climate change and there are health risks associated with it. And we often talk about, we look at 2050 and we're looking at trying to keep increasing temperatures below 2 degrees, below 1.5 degrees. What are the sorts of health impacts that we might be seeing today and how can you compare them to the health impacts we might be seeing in 2050 if we don't do the things we need to do? I think that's a great question. I think today we're going to be seeing those heat waves. They're going to be more extreme and that's going to be more clearly manifest. I think for the more subtle changes that might be manifest through food insecurity or infectious diseases or maybe mental health, I think it's going to be a few more decades before we really have this appreciation if we don't act that it's gotten a lot worse. It's not just climate anxiety. It's not just the youth of our generation, our time right now, who are advocating and saying these are stressors here. And I think you're going to see people who've been more resistant to the idea that climate change is impacting them personally, coming to recognize that it's affecting them and their loved ones. I'm going to bring in Joshua in just one second. But one final question to you, Dr. Shaman. It's sometimes very difficult to get politicians to set policies that are long term, whether it's building bridges or, or infrastructure, healthcare. Politicians often act on things that can happen now because that's where they get the credit. We're talking about some really long term things here. What 
role do you believe the students that you have Columbia Climate School or the work of the school in general, what role can you play in convincing politicians to take a bit more of a long-term approach in terms of making policy? Well, there, you know, we're struggling against election cycles, of yeah. course, as you, as you pointed out. I think the role of the school by educating and putting people out there who are not just going to work on community level action and not just work in climate justice, which are all really important, but are also going to go work at the World Bank and go work at the Bank of America and work for major corporations and also work in government as well. In other words, they're going to move into all sectors. And if we can put those people in and, and have that valuation that climate is a problem that's impacting sectors. And we're seeing this already in business. In some ways, if you want to be optimistic about this, you could say the horse has left the barn. Businesses are already having climate and sustainability officers in place, and they're already having to report this voluntarily. Once it gets standardized in some format, there's going to be real accountability, and it won't be just the greenwashing that people talk about. I think having the people with the training and the understanding of the system, the complex transdisciplinary effects that this system represents and how the linkages are interacted between not just climate and sustainability and biology, but economics and engineering and architectural design and health. When you understand those linkages and you put people out there who understand components of that really well to do the work that's needed, we're going to be in a better position to help solve this problem and protect ourselves. It's going to take time. And obviously, we've got to keep banging the drum. But it's something that I think we can contribute to. Brilliant. I'm going to bring in Joshua now. Joshua, you are strategy director, amongst many other things, at the Youth Climate Justice Fund. First of all, before we jump into some reactions there to what we were discussing with Dr. Shaman, could you tell us a little bit more about the Youth Climate Justice Fund? Thank you very much, Adam. The Youth Climate Justice Fund is a new fund that has been established to provide flexible, unrestricted core funding to youth climate justice movements, particularly in the global south and those from underserved communities in the global north, knowing that philanthropy for so long has not really provided enough resources for these groups. Currently, only 2% of philanthropy goes to climate. And for that, that goes to climate. Only 0.76 goes to youth movement. And out of that 0.76, majority of that is held for U.S. Uh, sort of youth organizations. So knowing that when it comes to justice, there's a lot that needs to be done in the global south. We set up this organization to move money, focusing on three areas. One of them is to build the next generation of climate leaders to really build movements that are stronger, to hold policymakers accountable and groups that can really raise ambition at the local level and scaling that to the international level. So that's what we are and we opened the first cycle of grants last week. It's been four days and we already have over 100 applications. A lot of young people really seeking support, sort of core funding to really support the work that they do. I think it's fair to describe yourself as a climate leader. You've been doing all sorts of things all over the world. And I was reading up the things that you were doing in Ghana originally. I once was lucky enough to go to the Climate Week in Accra. I think some of the most amazing, inspiring grassroots action taking place there. You've definitely been at the front line in climate action, but you mentioned there that youth and grassroots groups don't get a big piece of the pie when it comes to funding. What do you think the main reasons for that might be? I think there are several factors, one of them being the idea that climate is solely a carbon problem and a fossil fuel problem, and that is the ultimate. And while I agree with that, I think that has primarily made philanthropy really focus a lot on funding groups and movements that are really targeting fossil fuel industry. Now, that is needed. It's very essential. But what we didn't realize was that while we're trying to close the tap on fossil fuel emissions and carbon emissions in general, there were a huge part of society that was really drowning in the impact that already exists. 
and enough attention wasn't given to that. And I think that even when adaptation was coined and a lot of work was being done on that, there was still a very big resistance still focusing on making sort of the fight against fossil fuel the ultimate. And I'm not saying that that is not important. It's very important, but it doesn't have to be exclusive. And I think that we can really take on the fossil fuel industry. We can really reduce our emissions and work on all of that. But simultaneously, we can build resilience and help communities adapt. Uh, And that I think that is where the philanthropy and the funding mechanism really went wrong. And a lot of money went to groups or to issues that are really focused on mitigation as compared to adaptation. And it's still the case. That's really interesting and a really interesting segue to the conversation we're having today because there's a conversation about what's causing climate change but we need to have the conversation about today the impact that it's having just for those who might not be super familiar who are listening you mentioned two words there that in the world of climate we use a lot but maybe if you could explain what is adaptation what is resilience what do these things mean on the ground yeah, I mean, it means different things to different people. But I think two key words um, and worth explaining. Adaptation principally means it's a process of adjusting to your real impact and sort of projected impacts of climate change to reduce harm and to explore beneficial opportunities. What that simply means is that we know that we currently have sort of extreme weather event for some countries and some locations, we can prepare for that and we can actually make sure that people can live with those impacts if we give them certain resources. This could include different building codes and building standards. It could include access to health insurance for everybody that they can access healthcare. It could mean reinforcing healthcare infrastructure. And doing those things mean that when the impacts actually do happen, you can have resources to help you go through that. And in doing that, that is where resilience comes in because you're building resilience against all these impacts. So these are key that are very important but i think that because it's a process and it's not something that you can easily measure it can be very tricky to really sort of give someone concrete results this is adaptation whereas for other climate action you could say oh we're going to do this project it's going to take five tons of co2 from here to there so the math can be very easy there but when it comes to adaptation it could be as much as preserving people's culture and their heritage. And it's not something that you can easily measure or even put a financial value to. So that can make it very complex. But I think that that is very, very important and giving people the agency and the resources and tools to really develop themselves, particularly for young people. Because going through an extreme weather event, and I have a very good example with Cyclone Ida in Mozambique. I work with young people in Mozambique when the cyclone happened, interview them. And these are school buildings broken down. The sound of the storm in the night still plays in their head. This is waking up every day and seeing the sky is getting dark because of the clouds, the storm clouds coming and thinking, is it going to be another cyclone? And before, while they were rebuilding after cyclone, they die, another cyclone happened. And while they were building from, another cyclone happened again. And after each cyclone, there's months of floods, months of sanitation-related diseases, cholera, diarrhea. It's very difficult. It's extremely difficult. And I would not agree that we can limit everything to just reducing carbon in such situation. We can't fix this. Fault. We can't take on fossil fuel industry. But we've gone too far already. And we really need to pay attention to survival, thriving, growth, and well-being. And these are very important. And I think Dr. Shaman was, was talking about the three different ways that climate can impact on health, which was really interesting, stroke slightly scary as well, especially when you're looking at the third section, you know, the risk of climate refugees, which is a conversation we have a lot more at the moment. From your point of view, having worked with so many organisations around the world, 
Is there any hope when we're looking at reducing disparity, we're looking at addressing these concerns? Is there any hope? Are we doing anything in the right direction here to get rid of those disparities? There is hope and we are doing a lot. I really like what Professor Shami said around the role of universities in building the next generation of leaders. My personal journey started from being in a university and hearing the word climate change for the first time in 2012. And over the past sort of 14 years, I've had my own trajectory working in the field. Youth movements are really sort of burdened by the possibility of the future and the uncertainty around it. In doing that, what they need is really the understanding of how the current system functions and how they can influence that. And that can be very, very difficult and frustrating if they do not have access to that information. And that is why youth movement express their frustration through different ways. You get flash mobs, you get protests, people doing music about climate, you get people doing hunger, different form of actions. That is exhibition of frustration. How do we channel that frustration into influence? And that only happens when young people are empowered to have access to the spaces where change really happens. So I've had the chance to work in different organizations. I helped set up the Youth Advisory Group to the Secretary General, where it brought young people closer to the UN Secretary General in advising him on his climate action. We've done the same with the Global Center on Adaptation over the past two years. There has been several organizations, not just within the UN, but also outside of the UN, even private sector, setting up youth advisory groups, youth advisory panels, and involving young people on their board to help advise them. What that does, and my vision when we had this conversation at the very beginning was, how do you get young people to see themselves in these positions and not see institutions, particularly decision-making institutions, as the enemy. When that happens, they resist policymaking, they do not see themselves in those positions, and then we keep on the outside. But how do we expect to make these changes if we ourselves don't want to become decision-makers? if we don't want to be policymakers. And that is why I completely agree with you that we need to really build young people to see themselves as the next CEO, the next Secretary General, the next Director of EPA, all the big institutions where we really want to submit all our petitions to. They can't say no, they can't say yes, but what if we were actually the ones in that position? I think that's such an important point that you're making there and it is really interesting that we see at Client Week NYC so many different audiences coming together. You can no longer say there are youth groups, there are corporate groups, there are governmental groups. Actually all these things are interlinking together. I'd love to ask a sort of follow-up question to Dr. Shaman on this actually and, and also bring it over to you Joshua after. Touching on that piece you said earlier about this is about getting people out there into the world, into government, into business. How does Columbia Climate School do? Do you have strong relationships with the private sector, with the government sector? Is it just a question that you send out some of those talented people out there and they find their way? What's your secret sauce? Our secret sauce is we actually devote a lot of time in career placement and talking with our students about where they want to go and helping them collaborate and engage and make those linkages. So if a student wants to go into sustainable management or climate finance, we're going to work to find the players that are interested in that and help them. And we have some linkages and connections and partnerships already and more are growing by the day. And the same goes for youth organizations or NGOs or government positions. You know, I can quote you a statistic and it's a little self-serving, but you know, 95% of the students from our class last year were placed already in jobs and they just finished their program because it's actually a year-long program. So this is something we take very seriously and it's important. You know, you think about it as something that's sort of professional and it's something that business schools do and policy schools do. They're very keen on making sure that the students get something for their degree. You know, there has to be something that makes taking that coursework and investing your time and money worthwhile. For us, it's really critical, not just because that's a measure of our success, but we know that that's how they can have impact. So we want to be able to link them that way. 
And you mentioned to me earlier on before we were recording that a high percentage of people coming to the school are international students who also go on and have impact around the world. I guess that's an important part of this as well. It's huge. We do not want to be something that's actually provincial. We want to have a school ultimately where anybody from any background in any place in the world could apply. And if they're talented and motivated, finances and resources shouldn't stand in the way. That's a long-term objective that we have. We want to raise the resources so that anybody can come here. It's really important that we bring people from all corners of the world to be trained in this field and that other schools do the same as well. I think it's brilliant how we sort of come to the same conclusion here from two different angles, which is just that importance of getting people to understand the role that they can have in the world, whether it's through these corporate placements after they've studied, they've gone out there internationally as well, spreading the word, getting more people involved. Joshua, obviously, you know, you started out as a climate activist, you learning about climate change, wanting to do something about it. You're now in a position where you're supporting so many different other organisations for the Youth Climate Justice Fund. Just to close us out, for those who might be listening as part of the new client week nyc who are young who want to get involved who want to make a difference what advice would you give to them i think that the best advice i can have is you need to learn more about climate change it's very complex it's intertwined with everything we do in our daily lives it's intertwined with things that are historically part of us injustices from gender to race to everything we do i was looking at the food sector yesterday sort of food systems transformation things we need to do it's enormous and i think that we stand the risk of dissociating ourselves and really getting into anxiety and fear. But there is hope for, there's a lot of optimism there if we really learn more and give ourselves the chance to see the role that we can play as individuals. And for young people, I say it's a wide range of different things. We all need to do some sort of internship. We need to do some sort of research before we leave school. We are volunteering for different movements and NGOs. Playing your part in these groups is very important. I think that we need to own our stories. And I think the biggest mistake that we could do is working together. And that is not wrong. I think we all own our stories. For, for folks who are really coming from countries, cities where fossil fuel is so part of everything, they really advocate against that, call them out, call those companies. For young people who are coming from very grassroots organizations and communities in the global south where you've seen the droughts, the heat, call it out, call for adaptation, call for loss and damage financing. I think the more diversity we can share in the need, there's no one solution to it. So yeah. you learn more, you find your story, you share that story, and you call for what solutions are applicable to you. And the Youth Climate Justice Fund is there to support you do that, not just with funding, but also with giving access to the different sectors that operate within climate that you can advise and show your concerns with them, but also learn from organizations that have a good track record in delivering solutions when it comes to climate that you can actually learn from that. Brilliant. Thank A massive thank you to both of you. It's fantastic to be working with Columbia Climate School as our university partner, as well as the Youth Climate Justice Fund as our environmental justice partner as well. Fascinating conversation. Of course, it doesn't all end here because we're both engaged in lots and lots of activities during Climate Week NYC as well. I think over 400, 500 events this year. So lots to get our teeth into. Thank you both so much. Really appreciate the conversation. So, Adam, we just heard this great conversation with Dr. Jeff Shaman and Joshua Amponsem from the Youth Climate Justice Fund. Very curious to hear what your key points are. What are the highlights? What can we take away from this conversation? Yes, I feel like a theme that we're seeing time and again with these podcasts is the answer to the question, what 
can I do? How can I make a difference there? Joshua and Ponson from the Youth Climate Justice Fund has done so many things around the world in terms of bringing out climate leaders internationally. And I think we saw a great example there of how you can be part of the system, you can make change. And I think he gave us some really great, inspiring examples of just how you can do that. From the other side, Dr. Defi Shaman showing us just the importance of organisations like Columbia Climate School in getting people to understand the issues at play here so that they can go forward and there can be influential people in business, in government, in the NGO sector. So I think both Jeff and Joshua in different ways ended up coming to the same place here, which is the way that we make a difference is by getting people into positions of power and equipping them with the knowledge, the enthusiasm, the ambition and all the rest of it that will allow them to make a difference. So I thought two really interesting people there and a a great conversation I felt. Absolutely. I completely agree. It's all about finding the spaces to make a difference and connecting them together to actually address the widespread interdisciplinary impacts of climate change. And I think we saw a lot of that happening today and looking forward to more of that in the future. Adam, thank you so much again. We really appreciate having you on the show. So until next time. Thanks, Phil. Good to be here. Thanks again for tuning in and a special shout out to our guests, Adam, Dr. Jeffrey Shaman from the Columbia Climate School and Joshua Amponsem from the Youth Climate Justice Fund. Be sure to check us out online at climategroup.org and stay tuned for all our amazing events, including Climate Week NYC starting September 17th. Climate Group's 50 Shades of Green is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Google. Stay well, and we'll see you next time.